Let's turn in the scriptures to Psalm 110. Every winter, we take a few weeks to focus on a handful of psalms. These are songs. And every winter, our deliberate intention is to, just in the dark days of winter, focus on some particularly strengthening, encouraging songs. In the past, we've focused on songs of satisfaction, or we've focused on songs of refuge. Last year, we focused on songs of creation. And this year, we've been encouraged by songs of Jesus. Today is the fourth and the final encounter with Christ in this brief midwinter series, Songs of Jesus. Now, we could extend this series for months. There are several more psalms that focus explicitly on Jesus, and there are dozens that implicitly focus on Jesus. We could extend this out. We're just ending it with number four, but today we explore Psalm 110. All right. If the songs of Jesus were a greatest hits album called Songs of Jesus. Psalm 110 would be unquestionably the number one hit. It would be the signature song on the album. It would be the most popularly listened to song in the Bible. It is the most quoted psalm in the New Testament referred to some 25 times. One scholar, George Guthrie, calls it the exaltation psalm par excellence for the early church. If you want a song that exalts Jesus more than any other, Psalm 110's it. All right. Now, we're going to read it. Uh, The song breaks into two halves, so there's kind of like two stanzas. All right. The song really hangs on two promises. The first promise is in verse 1, and the second promise is in verse 4. It's a promise. Each of them are promises that God is making to his chosen ruler for earth. The chosen eternal king who's going to rule forever on earth. God is making a promise to his chosen king. Okay, that's... The promise in verse 1, the promise in verse 4. And then after each one of those promises, you have a description of how this king is going to be victorious overall. Okay? So let's just think about the psalm's structure. Verse 1 of Psalm 110, promise of God to his king. Verses 2 and 3, a description of how that king is going to be victorious. Verse 4, God's promise to his chosen king. Verses 5, 6, and 7, a description of how that king is going to be victorious. Promise victory, promise victory. That's how the song is structured, okay? Let's read it. A psalm of David. The Lord says to my Lord, this is David writing, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion... 
your mighty scepter, rule in the middle of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. That's the first half of the song. In verse 1, David writes that God, Jehovah, the great I Am, made a formal royal declaration to his chosen king, who we find out is going to be David's superior. So the coming king is going to be superior to David. David's going to be one of his servants. Hmm. Then in verses 2 and 3, God declares that his chosen king is going to conquer every enemy. He's going to rule from Zion, that is Jerusalem. Jerusalem is going to be like the capital city of the world or the capital city of God's kingdom, it's been said. And he's going to rule over people who freely submit under his authority. Now that last phrase of verse 3 is a bit tricky, right? I'm just sorting through the meaning of the psalm right now. From the womb of the morning... It's a really interesting phrase. It's hard to understand. It seems to be saying that all of the king's citizens who freely submit to his reign are are going to emerge from the darkness like, like dew in the morning. And just like dew covers the ground in the morning, there's coming a day when the whole earth is going to be covered with people who gladly and willingly submit to this king's rule. One scholar, Michael Sneerly, suggests that this imagery of emerging from the womb of the morning might be an Old Testament hint at regeneration. It actually might be one of those phrases that Jesus had in mind when he asked Nicodemus, wait, wait, you're a rabbi in Israel and you don't understand that people need to be born again in order to enter the kingdom? Hmm. That's verses 1 through 3. Now, the second stanza, verse 4. The Lord has sworn he will not change his mind. He says to his king, you're a priest forever after Melchizedek's order. The Lord's at your right hand. He'll shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He'll execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He'll shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He'll drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he'll lift up his head. So again, you have God speaking to his chosen king. And we find out in verse 4 that his chosen king, who's going to rule forever on earth, is also a priest, but a priest of a different order than anyone in David's day. All of the priests in David's day were from one of the tribes in Israel called Levi. This is going to be a priest of a completely different order. And then again in verses 5 to 7, his victory is described, but it's described in very sober terms. He's going to conquer every enemy so that the battlefield is covered with corpses. The last description of of the song is sublime. It says, this all-conquering king is going to go down to a brook and get water. (laughs) I think of it almost like a 30-second commercial for Mountain Valley spring water. 
the greatest tennis player on earth, is in the middle of one of the most difficult matches of his life. He's all sweaty, and on one of his breaks, he comes back, and the last clip of the commercial is sipping water from a green glass bottle before going back out and conquering. It's a little bit of what it's like. God's chosen king is going to be victorious over all the earth. Nothing's going to stop him. He's going to be simply refreshed until his work's done. Now, clearly, I've tried to explain Psalm 110. It's clear that David was a prophet, right? God allowed him, as it were, to sit in on a conversation that God the Father was having with God the Son. And this song reports that conversation that God let David in on. He heard God the Father promise God the Son that he was going to be king of kings and bring justice to the world. So I'd state the main point something like this. The Lord's chosen king, who will, by the way, also be the eternal priest, will first be enthroned. And then, after a time, he'll bring complete justice to the world. He's going to be enthroned. So this is a thousand years before Jesus is born that David's writing. King David wrote this song anticipating the day when the great king, who would be one of his sons, but also his Lord, and also an eternal priest, the eternal priest between sinners and God. He's writing this song and he's saying, one day my descendant, who's also going to be my Lord, who's also going to be a priest, is going to take his seat on the throne next to God and wait until God sends him out on a climactic military mission to conquer the world. Hmm. The way I title Psalm 110 is just to say it's the anthem of the ascension. Jesus is ascending to the throne. He takes his seat at God's right hand, and God says, one day soon, you're going to return, and you're going to be victorious. Now, if we're going to understand Psalm 110, I need to take you on what I would call like a little helicopter survey trip. In fact, three. We need to take three survey trips. The first one, if we're going to survey a forest, we just need to survey the Bible from page one to wherever we're at, page 400 and something. We need to take a quick survey of the territory from page one to Psalm 110. Secondly, we need to survey what Jesus and his apostles thought about this psalm. A thousand years later, what Jesus and his apostles thought about it. And finally, we're going to survey the letter to the Hebrews. We're going to survey how the letter to the Hebrews explains Psalm 110. All right, we've got to survey these territories. We're not going to get into any detail on any one of them, but we need to survey. Okay, so buckle up. 
First, we need to survey the Bible from page 1 to Psalm 110. See, Psalm 110 picks up in the middle of the story. And before you can understand what's going on in Psalm 110, you have to understand what's been going on before. Almost like picking up a movie in the middle. So here's a quick survey of what's been going on. Page 1 of the Bible. God created the whole world in six days, and that included Adam, the first human. He placed Adam and the wife he created for Adam, Eve, in a garden called Eden, and he intended for them to exercise dominion over creation. And he intended them by their love and their responsibility to show in creation what he's like. And he intended that the glory of the order and the beauty, the love, the responsibility in Eden, he intended that that would take over the world over time so that the whole world would understand what God is like through his human vice regents, princes and princesses, kings and queens, through these royal rulers that he established in creation. That's what humanity is. Adam was intended to exercise dominion. But instead of obeying God in the garden, Adam listened to God's enemy, a demonic force, and he revolted. He tried to be God. And as God had warned, Adam's rebellion brought the curse of death on all creation. And his whole race was infected with his disease of wanting to be God. I want to be my own authority. I don't want to submit to any God out there who might have created me. I want to call the shots for me. And yet, even as God said, your rebellion will result in death, he also promised, this is like the second page of the Bible, to send a descendant of Adam and Eve who would one day crush Satan under his foot. He would end the curse and restore peace and blessing and justice to creation. Hmm. So you get like two pages into the Bible and we understand why the world's beautiful and why the world's broken. And we understand that God has a plan to send a human who's going to end the curse of sin and death, and restore blessing to, to creation. Now, over the next centuries, really millennia that followed, God kept promising to rid the world of sin and death. First, monumentally through a descendant of Abraham. That's why all throughout the Bible, the Jews, the Hebrew people are so important. It's why they're circumcised. You say, why circumcised? It's because God promised to Abraham, it's through your offspring that the whole world is going to be rid of the curse. So after God brought Abraham's descendants out of Egypt through Moses, we're fast forwarding. At the Exodus, he split the Red Sea. There he entered into a closer relationship with the whole nation, the whole Hebrew people. It was at Mount Sinai that he gave them the law which explained how they could enter again into the presence of God. God created a, a building, a tabernacle, that, that pictured Eden 
And the only way you could get back into the presence of God was through a priest who offered a bloody sacrifice on your behalf. That's the only way you could be reconciled to God. So the law set up a way for, at least a picture of a way, for humans to once again be in the presence of God, almost as it were back in Eden. And a few centuries after Moses, 500 years after Moses, God led one of his prophets named Samuel to go anoint a shepherd boy named David. He anointed him as Israel's king. And God later promised David that one of his descendants would eventually rule forever and would restore peace and blessing to the world. That's why Psalm 110 is so important. Because God is on a mission to fix everything that's wrong in this world. And his mission centers on a man who's a child of Adam and Eve, a descendant of Abraham, one of the Hebrew people. He's the offspring of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is also a son of David in the Davidic dynasty. Someone is going to come who's going to fix this world. And Psalm 110 identifies him even further, more specifically. Psalm 110, I would say, is David's poetic description of this coming ruler who's going to bring peace and justice to the world again. The world that God created, which, by the way, is the world in which we still live. It's one day going to be rescued from the curse of sin and death. It will happen through a descendant of Abraham, who's also a descendant of David, who will himself offer a sacrifice. He will offer himself as a sacrifice and reign forever as king. You have to understand the story up to Psalm 110 to get why Psalm 110 is so significant. Okay, our first survey trip's done. Survey trip number two. What did Jesus and his apostles think about Psalm 110? Jesus was convinced, as well as Peter, we know both of them explicitly say, Psalm 110 was written by David in the Holy Spirit. And they clearly understood that Psalm 110 referred to Jesus. Okay? Let me show you that in four ways. It's a survey, okay? We can't get into tons of detail. Matthew 22, 24. There are parallels in Mark and in Luke. Jesus asked the Jews of his day, how can God's chosen king for the earth be both David's descendant and David's superior? And Jesus was trying to help the Jews of his day understand his own identity. That he was a descendant of David and at the very same time greater than David. He was God the Son. Jesus understood Psalm 110 to be referring to him. The night before Jesus was crucified, he was on trial at Caiaphas's house. And the high priest Caiaphas asks him directly, tell us if you're the Messiah. And do you know how Jesus answered in Matthew 26? 
He quoted Psalm 110. He said, it's as you say. From now on, you're going to see, Psalm 110.1, the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power. Jesus is saying, I am God's chosen ruler for earth. And you're going to crucify me. Hmm. 50 days later, 51 days later to be technical, 50 days after Passover, which is called Pentecost, in Acts 2, Peter is preaching his very famous sermon at Pentecost, and he declares that that man, Jesus, whom you crucified, he's been risen from the dead, he ascended into heaven, just as God promised in Psalm 110. Peter was an eyewitness of the crucifixion, the resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus. A few years later, Stephen, the first Christian martyr, as he's dying, God encourages him with a vision that proved to him that Psalm 110 had become a reality. He saw Jesus at the right hand of God, as Psalm 110 prophesied. In other words, this quick survey tour... What did Jesus and his apostles believe about Psalm 110? Simply, they clearly believed that Psalm 110 referred to Jesus, specifically to his ascension, that he would take his seat at God's right hand before taking over the world. This next one, you, you got to keep in your seatbelt. Survey how the letter to the Hebrews explains Psalm 110, okay? You might want to turn there. In fact, I would totally recommend that you turn there. If you're using the black hardcover Bibles, the letter to the Hebrews begins on page 941. Three years ago, we studied through this letter, about a chapter a week, sometimes taking a little bit less material. We worked through Hebrews chapter 7 in two particular weeks, and if you want to look back on our website or on Sermon Audio, both of them point to the same place, um, look at the two messages on Hebrews 7 and you can get a lot more detail than I'm giving right now. All I want to do right now is do a flyover of the whole letter, okay? The letter is called Hebrews because it was written to ethnic Jews who had converted to Christianity and suffered much for doing so. Some had been forced out of their homes. Some had been imprisoned. Many faced rejections from their communities and families. Many had lost everything for deciding to leave Judaism and embrace Christ and Christianity. And it's like, it's like the, the heaviness of what's taken place is settling in. And these suffering Christians are asking Was it worth it? Is following Jesus really worth all that I've lost? Wouldn't life be a whole lot easier if I just stopped following Jesus and returned to Judaism? I mean, Judaism isn't all that different. I mean, it's monotheistic. We both believe the Old Testament. They're not all that different. I mean, what's the big deal? Can't I just leave Jesus and life would be a lot easier? And the whole letter to the Hebrews is written to say, in essence, don't leave Jesus the Jewish scriptures the Old Testament they all point to Jesus 
If you leave Jesus, you say goodbye to everything. To God's forgiveness, to God's eternal kingdom, to God himself. Don't leave Jesus. Okay? That's the point of the letter to the Hebrews. How does the writer encourage endurance? You might say, why are we talking about Hebrews when you're preaching Psalm 110? It's because the letter to the Hebrews is essentially one long sermon on Psalm 110. I'm going to show you. Chapter 1, verse 3. You're in the beginning of Hebrews. Third verse. The writer explains how Jesus, after making purification for sins, referring to his crucifixion, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That's Psalm 110.1. Psalm 110, you might remember. Sit down at my right hand. Jump ahead to Hebrews 1.13. The writer is piling up Old Testament quotations and his climactic quotation in Hebrews 1.13. Psalm 110.1. When God the Father told God the Son, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your, for your feet. So the writer argues, Jesus is superior to any other person. He is the ascended king. He's superior to any other human, any other angel. He's better than any other priest or mediator because he's both king and priest, according to Psalm 110. Jesus is superior. Okay? Then, chapters 3 and 4, the writer continues to explain how Jesus is better than any other representative of God's people, whether king or leader or priest. Jesus is better. In chapter 5, verse 6, the author quotes from two psalms, Psalm 2 and Psalm 110. At the end of chapter 5, verse 10, He refers to the fact that Jesus, by his death and resurrection, became the source of eternal salvation, which was fulfilling his calling by God the Father to be a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. He'd be an eternal priest. And there he's quoting, at the end of verse 10, Psalm 110, verse 4. Now, look at Hebrews 5.11. The author basically says, now I want to keep on teaching you guys about Jesus, but you're struggling to pay attention. So he gives them a warning at the end of five, throughout the first half of chapter six, before returning. Look at the last line of chapter six. The very last line of Hebrews chapter six. He says, now after giving you this warning to perk up, listen, Receive this truth about Jesus. He says, now, I want to point you again to the reality that Jesus has become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. He wants to teach them Psalm 110. So he turns to chapter 7. This is what we read this morning earlier in the scripture reading. The whole chapter, which is at the very center and heart of the letter, is an explanation of what it means to be a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Hmm. 
Notice he quotes Psalm 110 in verses 17 and in verse 21. It means that Jesus is both a king and priest. He's a priest forever after Melchizedek's order. He's a priest like Israel has not seen. He's going to bring forever peace to the world as king. He's going to be a priest who can bring people who are rebellious against God forever into the presence of God. And his whole argument is Jesus is tons better than anything you've ever seen in the past. Don't leave Jesus. Very famously in verse 25, one of my favorite verses, he says, because Jesus lives forever, he can completely and forever save anyone who comes to God through him. And then, look at chapter 8, verse 1. The writer summarizes everything he's been saying to this point. Quote, Now the point in what we're saying is this. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of God. In other words, he's fulfilling Psalm 110.1. And the writer is going to go on to explain that if Jesus belongs to a new order of priests, one that's better than what the law commanded in the Levitical order, If Jesus is a new kind of priest, then he must be working out the terms of a new covenant, a new sort of covenant, a better covenant, and that's the focus of chapters 8 and 9. He's going to sum up his argument in chapter 10, verses 12 and 13, where he says, now all those priests, they keep doing their work. They keep offering sacrifices. But Jesus offered one sacrifice and sat down, Psalm 110.1. He keeps quoting Psalm 110 all through the letter. I have to point out the last one. Chapter 12, verse 2. Here, the writer is almost like an athletic coach shouting from the side of the road to someone who's running a marathon and is in the, 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 the worst throes of, of, of suffering on this, this, this race. He just keeps saying, keep running. Run with endurance. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus, who after enduring the cross, verse 2, took his seat at God's right hand, just like Psalm 110 said. Do you see? I know it's been a lot, and I appreciate you keeping your seat belts on for the whole ride. Do you see that Psalm 110 is like the I-beam That's running through the letter to the Hebrews. It's like the letter to the Hebrews is one long message based on Psalm 110. Jesus has been appointed by God to rule forever on earth. And according to Psalm 110, he's going to sit down at the right hand of God his Father before He makes his enemies a footstool for his feet. It is the anthem of the ascension before the takeover. Now, this is where we end. Okay? We've been on three quick surveys to make sense of Psalm 110. And now you say, okay, Jesus is seated at God's right hand. So what? I totally get the question. I hope that you see the big picture that Jesus is God's appointed ruler for earth. And I hope that you start working out 
okay, so that, that does make a difference in, in my broad outlook. I need to be a long-term optimist if I'm a Christian. If I'm not a Christian, I need to, need to submit to Jesus. I need to figure out what it means to follow this king, right? I want to first talk just very specifically for Christians, because again, Psalm 110 is quoted a lot in the Bible. I have four applications for Christians based on the fact that Jesus is seated at God's right hand right now, like Psalm 110 promised, okay? The first one is this. Paul argues from Psalm 110 in Romans 8. Since the ascended king advocates for you before the throne of God, don't worry too much about others' accusations. In Romans 8, Paul is writing to Christians who are like us, suffering all kinds of problems. And he's reminding them, like we need to be reminded, that we are forever united to Jesus and we are forever secure in Jesus. No matter what might happen to us today or tomorrow, we're secure if we belong to Jesus. And in verse 34, he specifically says, even if you're falsely accused, no one can ultimately condemn you because, I'm quoting Romans 8, 34, Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, he was raised, who is, as Psalm 110 says, seated at the right hand of God. And he, right now, is advocating for us. That's why we sang in the old German hymn, Who can against me even one word say? If the ascended king who's going to rule on earth, who paid for all your sins, is your defense attorney? Don't worry too much about gossip. Don't worry too much about slander. Jesus' ascension should anchor you emotionally in these sorts of trials. Secondly, since the ascended king is the one with whom you're eternally united, put off self-centeredness and pursue a life of love. This is how Paul reasons based on Psalm 110 and Colossians 3. He says, Seek the things which are above where Christ is. Psalm 110.1 Seated at the right hand of God. And Paul goes on to explain what he means by seeking the things above. He basically says, get rid of the things that characterized your past life, like immoral desire and immoral activity. Get rid of anger and harsh communication and pursue Christ-like virtue, like humility and patience and love, putting others' needs above your own. If you're united with Christ who's ascended and at the right hand of God right now, live differently. Live for Christ all out. Right? Third, since the ascended king is the church's head, pour your life into his church. This is how Paul reasons based on Psalm 110 in Ephesians 1. Ephesians 1, verses 20 through 22, refer to Psalm 110. See if you hear it. When Paul explains to Christians that the risen Jesus is seated at God's right hand, exalted over every angel and demon, 
And God has determined to, quote, put all things under the feet of Jesus. Seated at the right hand, he's going to put all things under his feet. Under the authority of Jesus. And chapter 1 ends with saying, yeah, the risen Christ who's been seated at God's right hand so that all things are going to be put under his feet, he's the head of the church. So Christian, be part of Jesus' church. Stay connected to the church. Endure hardships that are associated with commitment to the church. Invest your life in the church. Pray continually for the church. Because the mission of earth's ascended king is the health and the progress of his church. Hmm. You see how the ascension shapes your life? Fourth and finally, since the ascended king will conquer every foe, don't fear death. This is how Paul reasons based on Psalm 110 in 1 Corinthians 15. Paul is reminding Christians about how important it is to believe that Jesus literally rose from the dead. After being crucified and buried, he rose from the dead. Paul explains that's not only historical fact, it fuels our hope for the future. Let me quote verses 24, 25, and 26. Paul says, Then the end comes when Jesus delivers the kingdom to God, for he must reign until he has put all things under his feet. Psalm 1101. Jesus must reign until he puts everything under his feet. Paul says, The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. Death is not the final word for Christians. Death will not win in the end. Jesus will. Jesus, the King, conquered death and he ascended and is right now alive in a human body seated at the throne of God. He is going to finish what he's begun. He's going to destroy death forever. Swallow it up in victory. So Christian, grieve death. Hate death. But don't fear it. Jesus is all we need. Do you see how the truth of Psalm 110, as Hebrews says it at one point, is the anchor for your soul? It anchors you. So my last word is actually to those who are not followers of Jesus. Those who haven't yet called out to Jesus as God's crucified, risen, ascended, and returning king. And said, would you be my Lord and master and savior and shepherd? If you're here this morning and you're exploring Christianity, you're wondering what it's all about, I'm thrilled that you're here. And I... I hope that you keep coming and keep exploring and asking questions. I hope that you always sense that in our congregation, your questions are totally welcome, that there's patience, that, that we're trying to, to find out the answers if we don't know them, that there's a humility, that like all these things. Like, it's wonderful that you're here.
I want to speak to you very directly here at the end and just plead with you. Do you sense that something's wrong with the world? Do you realize that the world's under a curse and that everything, including everyone, is beautiful and broken? We're not what we should be. We're made to love God and others more than we love ourselves, but that's not natural for any of us. Something's wrong. Do you know that the Bible is basically the story of what's gone wrong and how God's going to fix it? It's basically the story of how sin can be forgiven about how perfect justice is going to come to earth and about how everything that's rogue in creation, including death itself, is going to be subdued. That's the message of the Bible, how God's going to fix what's broken. And Psalm 110, as like the greatest hit, says, it's Jesus, only Jesus, Lord, King, priest, ruler, conqueror. It's Jesus. The only way you can be forgiven, you can enter Jesus' kingdom, is if you will turn from your Adamic nature, your nature in Adam, that says, I want to be my own authority. I want to call my own shots. I'm not going to listen to God I'm going to do what I think is best. And if you instead will call out to Jesus and say, save me. And you know what? Jesus is God, King. Jesus is priest, Lord, conqueror. He is ascended right now at the throne of God. And you know what Jesus can do? He can hear you. The king can hear you. And if you will call out on Jesus as Lord to save you from your sin because he died for you and to save you from death because he rose again and promises that anyone united to him will not end in death, And you pray to Jesus, would you fix my life? Would you save me? Lord, help! The ascended king hears and will save. Oh God, I pray that you would exalt Jesus by leading many here to call out to him for salvation. And God, I pray that your ascended king who will return to earth, I pray that the reality that he's seated at your right hand would be our anchor through every trial. Jesus, be glorified. Amen. Amen.